1: The show is brought to you by Audible.com, the internet's leading provider of spoken word entertainment. To get a free audiobook download of your choice today, sign up to audiblepodcast.com slash sofa today for details. This is Starship Sofa. Everybody, welcome, hello, and welcome to Oral Delights, show number 99. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. <laughs> Yes, we are on to show 99. One more before that fantastic 100. I'll give you a little heads up what's coming on. Today's show, we have the editorial. And it's given you the Starship So far's Stories Volume 1. It's given you the official lineup, And I'm going to delve into a little bit more of how this anthology is getting put together. So that's the editorial. We have a song by our good friend, Mr. Fred Heimbaugh. We have a fact article by Corey Doxrow. Main fiction comes from Lawrence Watt Evans. Got a fact article by our good friend Simon Hildebrandt, who's talking all about the Google Android app for Starship Over. Then we have some new titles. And again, a quick mention for Save Our Zines on the 31st of October. That is Show 99 from a very excited and happy Tony C. Smith. <laughs> So welcome to Show 99's editorial, and like I say, one more until that big 100. What we're doing for the 100, we're putting together the Starship Sova's anthology, Starship Sova Stories, Volume 1, as I mentioned last week. And I'm now in possession of, or the kind of the list for the, the final who's going to be in that mag- or magazine, who's going to be in actually that printed book. So these are the authors. We have Ken Shoals, first up with Into the Blank, Where Life Is Hurled. Then we have Michael Moorcock's in there with London Bone, the very first story Oral Delights played. Then we have the second coming of Jasmine Fitzgerald by Peter Watts, Lester Young and the Jupiter Moons Blues, Seller, Vampire Kiss, Gene Wolfe. Then up is Vinegar Peace or the Wrong Way Used Adult Orphanage by Michael Bishop. Then we have that great story, Joe R. Lansdale's Godzilla's 12-step programme. Next coming up is Jesus Christ Reanimator by Ken McLeod. Then you've got Al Reynolds, Alistair Reynolds' Sledgemaker's Daughter. Then we've got Ruth Nesvold's Mars, A Traveller's Guide. We've also got Jeffrey Ford's Empire of Ice Cream. Larry Santoro's Little Girl Down the Way. Spy Robinson's In the Olden Days. Tideline by Elizabeth Baer. And finally, Benjamin Rosenbaum's The Anne King, a Californian fairy tale. That is the first lineup for Starship Sofa Stories Volume 1. A fine volume. You know, and this is like what we're doing is putting this together, kind of celebrate, you know, Starship Sofa and Oral Delights, getting to this kind of 100th show. And, you know, even putting them stories aside, and you think about the kind of, you know, to, you know, we're celebrating this like 100 next week. But, you know, think of the writers that's kind of been on. You know, never mind the kind of, they're not in the book, but just, you know, Joe Haldeman, we've had him on, Rudy Rucker, Ted Chang, Harry Harrison. Do you know what I mean? We've played so many like Hugo winning, Hugo nominated, Nebula nominated stories. It's just like a, you know what I mean? It's a fine time to be oral delights. I'm, I'm really quite proud. Do you know what I mean? It's, 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 it's rather nice. In fact, it's not just rather nice, it's... In fantastic, if I'm truthful. I'm buzzing like a little happy bee. Yes, I was I was planning on like see I'm still gonna do for next week's show like a, a series of little short stories and put them all together and have one big kinda nice show of like short stories, you know. And I was always planning that, but then this you know D dropped it on my lap this idea to to get out this volume of this this book and it's just been like a whirlwind, honestly. Do you know what I mean? And I'm realising now, it ain't, like, an easy thing. Do you know what I mean? And I'm now realising, you know, like, everyone that's involved, you know, like, D, the amount of time he must be spending on this to get it, I'm, I bet he wish he never sent the email. Do you know what I mean? He's just got so much work. You know what I mean? It's, it's constant. And, you know, you think you put it together and, you know, you, you kind of, there's Leo Truman, there you go, you know, and I had to kind of write a little introduction and a few more bits of things, and, but it's like the proofreading that starts, you know, you hear about this proofreading and no matter how many people look at it, do you know, I'll, I'll, I'll send it to someone and say, just, just have a quick look, you know what I mean? I know it's covered. Actually, I don't say that now. I know it's covered, but you know, just have a, come back with like a load of faults. And I'm thinking, listen, that should have been spotted by somebody. But it's, it's everyone, you know, and my, my writing. Oh. That's why I packed in. Do you know what I mean? Because that's this is ringing bells. This is ringing alarm bells. Why I stopped writing. Do you know what I mean? It's just a great imagination. Do you know what I mean? I'll, I'll give me credit on that. But you know, I can kind of think of things, and I'm way off, and stories come easy like that. But the process of it. Do you know what I mean? It's oh, not very nice. But we are there now. So uh, I'm nearly there now. We're up to the kind of final stages. People are sending in proof reads and proof copies of it. You know, I'm fingers crossed I'm kinda of taking it for granted the writers have got their arses covered if I want for a better word, and they're all correct and you know sorted of them stories is just kind of our little bits. And you know, even just like adding like another picture might knock your page count off. And you know, that was something that I noticed where you know it was kinda of, right, that's it. It's like a final proof, send it out. And straight away, like all the page numbers were off because we'd added in a couple more images. So basically, where we are now with volume one, because yes, they will, every year this will be, you know, volume two. Honestly, trust us, mate. Like i I get <laughs> You know that feeling you get, like I'm 42, man. I'm like <clears throat> We're at the stage now where it's nearly complete. And like I say, I roped in as well, you know, like D. Bless his heart, he volunteered and it was fantastic. And, you know, means that you're kind of working. The amount of emails we've sent each other, hundreds. I wrote in Skeet for the artwork and that's now complete. And, do you know what I mean? Oh, God, man. Whoa, do you know what I mean? Fantastic. So, in a few days' time, I'm going to kind of filter that onto the internet as well before the actual release of the book so you can get a look at that. And the whole style of the book and everything, and it was D's idea, you know, hats off to D again, this was D's idea. He said, let's do it in this 50s style pulp, you know, like really make it kind of a distressed, destroyed looking book. But it'll be a, a pristine condition book, but just with that kind of feel and that texture. And then when you get inside, it's laid out in that old kind of pulpy style. And I must admit, mind you, it is. You look at them kind of pulpy magazines and then books from the kind of 50s. And it just makes your imagination wander and the excitement, you know, like, and this is where time travel and all these, you know, like, rockets and lasers and strange creatures on these covers, brightly coloured, you know, them images, that's what kicks me into the kind of orbit with science fiction. So we've, we've went, you know, in that kind of style, and it's it's come off really great, to be quite honest, you know, Skeet's put this work out, and he says it's his best one yet. And it's tremendous. Do you know what I mean? And I let Skeet. I just see a Skeet do an image. Do you know what I mean? Because I didn't want kind of any. I didn't want to really kind of hamper you know what I mean? If that's once for sort of a better word, the image has nothing to do with any of the stories on side. It's just it's Skeet's kind of interpretation of you know what he want to do, and then that image has been kind of sent over to D, and then D's basically messed it up <laughs> sorry to you know what I mean he's put like different layers on in all Photoshop and really made it look like a, a kind of battered old book and it's like it's that kind of fifties fonts and the logo as well. Do you know what I mean? I just love that it's like such a basic little rocket with Starship Sova. You know the way I kind of write it. I don't know if anyone noticed it that's the way to write Starship Silver three capital s's all one word let that be a lesson right if you see that anywhere else starship and then sofa separate get it changed, get them told so like I say the, magazine, the, the magazine it's a book man for god's sake tony the artwork and that and everything inside is kind of is being done in this kind of style and that's just come off First class. So that's. it's ne- Well it is there. The cover's finished there now. I'll I'll, I'll like to say. A couple of days time. I'll start filtering that on the internet. And users will all be getting emails about it. Then I've seen. This is where we're up to now. Josh with the website. That's coming on. Leaps and bounds. Do you know what I mean? And that's just looking. Do you know what I mean? Again. Excited. Excited about that. So now the website's so close to finishing. We're just really waiting. For. or Josh is just waiting for kind of. Final final copy text. So we can give. Josh that so you can kind of place it in and like you say I think everything's just going to come together at the last minute. Do you know it's it's we're all just kind of waiting just 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 and then hopefully it'll all just kick off and in the website what you'll be able to go straight from kind of Starship Sofa, it is there'll be the link to kind of buy the book you know so you can just go and I don't know how how that's going to work. You know, from my page or from the website page, do you go straight to Lulu and then you're on Lulu's, but it'll be through Lulu, or will you be able to buy it all through kind of my... You know, you you will not see the kind of the engine of Lulu. That's... I've no idea just yet. But there will also be a, just a free ebook. you know, so you can just kind of download it. And it's... Please, you know I mean? It's there. Give it away. You know, give it to people that kind of you don't know, who are not too sure in science fiction. Give them that, you know what I mean? There's some great stories on there. Tell them about Starship. So that's the whole idea of this ebook, you know, and that's the whole kind of philosophy on it. Get it spread out along the, you know, across the internet. Just get that out there and give it and send it and, you know, brilliant. Then on the actual site as well, you can, if you wanted to, just read it. You know, we're going to have like a widget in there that makes that kind of, you know, the, I think the company's called, issue issue issue.com you know they've got the it looks like a magazine and then you click on it you know the page kind of bends over nice and it's very graphically pleasing to the eye so that'll be there as well there's a few there'll be the authors again the bios and we've got some pictures i'm I'm getting like the photographs of, of all the authors so and i'm actually looking at it there now and yes happy happy as larry so there you go there'll be lots of donate buttons kicking around the site as well so that is the kind of update. We are nearly there. It's go for launch. We're going to try and get it for this, like I next week's show is the hundredth one. What I would love to do is mention on that show, right, it's ready to go. And I don't think anything would stop where this is what we're thinking. Not on our side. I don't, we're not too sure about Lulu. We know you've got to kind of send up a copy, like a, the, the PDF and then they give you, they, print the book off and then they send it to you and you've got to make a decision so what we're going to do we decided is we're going to just send up the version we've got left at the minute i'll still have some proof copies on <laughs> like proof edits to do but that's going to kind of jump the gun and, and you know we'll, we'll get that and then that'll be fine and then we'll up, upload the kind of the original you know like or the kind of final gold pressing for want of a better word you know you never know there might be a, a kind of a little copy edit there something wrong you know <laughs> Bloody hell with my words <laughs> language, I write like I speak, do you know what I mean and, and if you haven't listened to me you know, you've come on, you've come listen to this show pretty new, I take a little bit of time, to, you know, it takes you a bit of time to get tuned in, you know, ask Fred he's always said that, you know, it took him a while to get tuned into my language you know it, 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 it. <laughs> so, now when I'm writing, it's exactly the bloody same, And then you know what I mean but you can't kind of have that on, on kind of written work, you know, and so people's kind of having to Tack a lot. I feel sorry for. So that's why there might be the odd kind of copy floating around where there isn't an odd mistake. I don't think there will be, but there might be. Do you know what I mean? You never know that kind of thing. But I think we'll just be able to change it. You know, there and then, and then upload a new copy. And so there might be one or two floating copies of this around. So there you go. So look out for some emails, buyers. If you have contacted us, if I've somehow got the hold of your email. I will send you the copy, you know, the the kind of the image just so you can have a look at that. And then I'll again announce it that the actual book's out and the website's open. So that's what we're hoping for next week. That the website is done and the book's there ready to buy. And it looks like it's about what I'm aiming for is to get the price. Still don't know exactly the price-wise, but what I said last week. Still trying to get the book under like a 10 at, you know what I mean? It'd be nice to get it like, say, £8.00. Somewhere around that category what i'm what would be fantastic is like say if I can make like four pound five pound on a book that'll go to starship Sova's like account, that would be amazing but I'm thinking it might be somewhere around there because of the price it's about I think it's going to be around about 180, 190 pages on in this anthology and it, it, you're kind of governed by the amount of paper you know that's where all the pricing comes down to so hopefully it's something like that and i haven't got a clue about postage and packaging just yet it all depends where you live in the world do you know what I mean i think uk and america it's pretty you know like it's kind of amazon price i think so that is as much as i know look out for the artwork coming around and you know do consider like i say Getting it when it comes out. Again, I'll be harping on about, I'm going to be harping on about it on the sofa north shore. But like I say, it's a big thing to us. And, you know, I kind of keep on going on about it, but it means a lot to us, you know, and hopefully it means a lot to everyone else who listened to the show, you know, and who's got like kind of empathy with the show, you know, to have our own kind of anthology. You know, I like I say, there's loads of people help out. You know, I'm so pleased for everyone. But it's everyone that listens is part of Starship Sova. Do you know what I mean? So I count you all as mates. Do you know what I mean? And we all love science fiction. So hopefully this is one way to kind of keep it going as best we can. I think that's enough of me rambling on, you know, about Starship (laughs) Sova stories volume one. I think. I think, yes, I can see Fred is tuning up for the mic. He is going to give a little song. Mr. Fred, the dark man himself, Mr. Fred Heimbo.
2: What shall we do with the drunken robot? What shall we do with the drunken robot? What shall we do with the drunken robot? Her lie in the morning, way hey, and uploaded way hey and uploaded way hey and uploaded intoxicating protocols put him on a scrap peep until he's sober put him on a scrap peep until he's sober put him on a scrap heap until he's sober her lie in the morning way hey and uploaded way hey and uploaded way hey and uploaded Intoxicating protocols. Let him sweep the floor in a random pattern. Let him sweep the floor in a random pattern. Let him sweep the floor in a random pattern. In a random pattern. Her line the morning. Slap, slap him it and it across, it. His slap slap a across his little actuator. Slap him across his little actuator. Slap him across his little actuator. Her line the morning way hey and all it way hey and all it way hey and all in tactics caten protocols That he's broken as a monster law Tell him that he's broken as a mobstered law Tell him that he's broken as a mobstered law Her line the morning Wait What shall we brew for a drunken robot? What shall we brew for a drunken robot? What shall we brew for a drunken robot? Oh lie in the morning, serve him engine oil with the toy umbrella. Serve engine oil with the toy umbrella. Way hey and up, way hey and up, way hey and up, way hey.
1: Where on earth has Fred getting that idea from? Do you know what I mean? Was that, Fred, was that a couple of drinks with the wife or, you know, coming in one night and messing on with the computer and I'm going to sing that bloody song. (laughs) And actually he sent it, Fred sent it. And I've obviously been too busy with this, all this project of the the kind of anthology and I missed it totally. And he sent it again and like I I clicked on play and he just smiled from ear to ear. So Fred, thank you. Next up we have little fact article by Corey Doctorow. It is narrated by Paul Kajiji over there at Process Diary. Paul, thank you so
3: much. Corey Doctorow, Special Pleading First published, Locus Online, Friday, September 4, 2009 As I write these words... The news of Locus editor-in-chief and co-founder Charles N. Brown's death is only a week old, and I'm still in shock. Charles has been generous and supportive of me throughout my career, and producing this column for the past three years has been a curious kind of pleasure. These columns, written directly, more or less, to the science fiction publishing industry, are very different from the other kinds of writing I do, and in some way, they are all continuations of a long-ago interview I conducted with Charles at the Worldcon in San Jose five years ago. Which was typical of Charles' interviews. As John Schulze describes them, it largely consisted of the two of us having a conversation, me on a couch and him at his desk, and him seemingly being a bit grumpy about it. That challenging, intelligent and wide ranging discussion has never really ended for me. Nor apparently did it ever end for Charles. In the July issue, which just arrived at my PO box this week, Charles writes about a little print-on-demand project I'm planning called With a Little Help, a short story collection that tries every imaginable income-generating technique for open publishing in order to get some data about which avenues hold the most promise. I don't know what it'll prove... Remember, Stephen King was able to see an incredible number of downloads of a short story, but I never heard of anyone duplicating that success. Corey, with his vast internet connections, may succeed, but will it affect publishing? Probably not. And now I'd like to return Charles's volley, though he'll never get to see it, because, you know, it's his magazine and he hired me to do this. And when your publisher hands you a straight line like that, you'd be nuts to pass it on. In January 2003, my first novel came out, called Down and Out in the Magic Kingdom. It was published by Tor as a hardcover original with a print run of about 9800 with an advance of about $7,500. Like practically every other first-time novelist, I dreamed of selling a book and quitting my day job, though I had a really cool day job working as a full-time activist for the San Francisco-based Civil Liberties Group Electronic Frontier Foundation. As with virtually every other first-time novelist, the advance of my first book totally failed to change my life and catapult me to financial independence. I was level-headed enough to know that this wasn't going to happen, even if I did occasionally daydream about it, I knew that if I was ever going to be a full-time writer, it would come as the result of a career of books that succeeded commercially and critically, and that meant writing the best books I could and doing everything I could to help my publishers sell as many books as they could. Down and Out was critically successful, garnering good mentions in the trade press and even the New York Times. I had already established a modest name for myself at the time, having sold about a dozen short stories and won the Campbell Award for Best New Writer at the 2000 Worldcon on their strength. Boing Boing, the blog I co-edit, had about 30,000 unique readers back then, now it's a couple of million, which was a good-sized megaphone to be speaking through. To make things more interesting... I became the first novelist to use the brand new Creative Commons licences on a book, releasing the electronic text on terms that allowed for its free, non-commercial sharing. 30,000 people downloaded the book in the first 24 hours. Several million copies have been downloaded to date, and the hardcover did well too. By the time the trade paperback came out a year later we'd hit about 85% sell-through, a good number that pleased Tor, my agent, and me. It's amazing to think in retrospect of the amount of foo-for-all this garnered. At the time, the prevailing wisdom was that as soon as an electronic book leaked onto the internet, its commercial life was over, first because readers would never pay for it, and second because publishers and booksellers wouldn't stock it. Even though Bruce Sterling had sold a ton of copies of his 1992 The Hacker Crackdown while simultaneously releasing the book as literary freeware. Even though Orson Scott Card had released several of his books on AOL. Even though the nascent bookwares scene had put thousands of current and classic titles online as text files without obliterating their commercial fortunes. The Down and Out in the Magic Kingdom experiment really pissed people off. It was denounced as a breaking of ranks with authors as a class and as a stunt that I could only afford because I had so little to lose being such a nobody in the field with my handful of short story sales and my tiny print run, at least when compared to the big guys. Free samples were good news if no one had heard of you, but for successful writers, free downloads were poison. To prove this, critics often pointed to Stephen King's experiment in online publishing The Plant, which King gave up as a bad job after earning a mere hundreds of thousands of dollars in volunteer payments, and which he never returned to. A genuinely successful writer like King had nothing to gain from the publicity value of free downloads, they said. Ironically, this appears to be the story that Charles referred to in The July locus, citing it as proof of the success of free downloads. Over the next six years a funny thing happened. After publishing three more novels, two books of short stories, a collection of essays, a graphic novel, and a million or so words worth of non-fiction, speeches, essays, and blog posts, I seem to have made it more or less. I quit working for EFF on January 1, 2006, in order to write full-time, though I've found that interesting diversions rise up to fill the vacuum left by the day job, from my 18-month-old daughter to a year's stay in Los Angeles on faculty at the University of Southern California, under the auspices of the Fulbright Program, to a little screenwriting, to some lectures. And, of course, there's Boing Boing, now grown into a modestly successful business that provides a nice supplemental income and provides some security, as well as a means of keeping my readers excited about my work between books. The other thing that's changed is the criticism. Six years ago, down and out in the Magic Kingdom, couldn't be counted as a real success for open publishing because I was too obscure to feel the cost of the lost sales. Now I'm too successful, someone whose name is so widely known that I am uniquely situated to benefit from open publishing, since the micro net frame I enjoy provides the vital push necessary to wrest sales from freebies. Hilariously, some of the people who say this go back in time and revise history, claiming that I was only able to sell as many copies of Down and Out as I have over the years, Nine printings and still selling great because I was such a big-shot famous writer in 2003 on the strength of a dozen short story sales. There's a name for this rhetorical tactic, special pleading. Special pleading is when you claim that some example doesn't merit consideration because it lacks or contains some special characteristic that makes it unique, not part of the general discussion. I hear a lot of special pleading taking on one of two forms. Your books only sell because you're such a popular blogger. No one else can do what you do unless they too are popular in some other field. It's true that being widely read in one area is a good way to sell books in another area. Nationally syndicated humor columnist David Barry does well with his novels. Folk legend Janice Ian has a good reputation for her excellent short fiction and poetry. More broadly, any kind of fame is a plus when it comes to marketing a book, as director Guillermo del Toro and his publisher knew before his novel The Strain went to press. But some well-known people sell a book and then move on after the critics have had their way with them, and some keep on writing and selling. These latter are writers who happen to do something else, just as Jeff Landis works for NASA and writes, just as Kim Stanley Robinson and Rudy Rucker taught at university while writing, just as a thousand other writers find that having a day job is too much fun or too satisfying or too necessary to give up. You have sources of income other than science fiction. You can afford to give your books away. Not everyone can found a successful company or get paid for speaking while working on novels. It's true that I co-founded and co-run Boing Boing and that the income from it and from a few talks a year helped to supplement my income and it's true that not every writer can do this. By the same token, not every writer can be a shrewd investor like Robert Silverberg, or an MIT faculty member like Joe Holdman, or the great-grandson of an oil tycoon like Larry Niven. Many is the writer who found that, free downloads or no, having another source of income made good sense. But the fact is that writing is a substantial and crucial part of my family's income. I'm not going to publish my tax return here, but you can do the math for yourself. For my last novel, about a 100,000 hardcovers of Little Brother, in print at about $2 royalty each. 17 foreign rights deals, ranging from a few thousand to mid-five figures, audio rights, film option, etc. Then there's 26 columns a year for The Guardian, six a year in Locus, half a dozen short stories and royalties from my backlist... While I'm awfully glad of my boing-boing and lectures and incidental income, I've got plenty of skin in the game and sell plenty of books. I don't give away downloads because I'm just a swell guy. I do it because I'm a self-employed entrepreneur who needs to make as much as he can to support his family. Marketing and business are not science. Despite the conceits of quantitative economists, there's precious few good double-blind experiments to be run on commercial propositions. At the end of the day, all we know about any business model is whether it appears to be working for the people who've tried it. And even then, we don't know what the future holds, as any number of once-enthusiastic derivatives hedges can tell you from bitter experience. Writers are all different, and the success stories are all unique. Some SF writers enrich themselves with grants or film deals, or by writing ten books for every book that their peers manage to write. Some edit, some have wealthy spouses. Gene Wolfe co-invented the machine that Pringles came out of, a true fact. An artist's income is very much an a la carte proposition, in which writers choose some items from one or more columns in order to find the fit that suits them best – that won't work for every writer is as weird and pointless as those directions might get you to the corner store, but if you're trying to get to the greengrocers, they're useless. All we can know in the end is what worked for some writers so that we can see if they worked for us. Here's what I think I know about online publishing and free downloads. The conversion rate is low. When the price is $0, a lot of people will come and kick the tires, but only a few will buy, just as a lot of people pick up a book in a store and rifle the pages without buying the book. Free downloads work amazingly well to magnify existing publicity, enabling friends to tell each other about the books they love by sending them to the ebook. Among these people, the conversion rate is much higher. Free downloads don't generate much publicity in and of themselves. They need to be part of a larger campaign that gets people excited about the project. Now here are some things I'd really like to find out. Will people donate to support a free book? How much? Will they donate more to support an audiobook or a print edition? How much work does it take to replicate a professional publisher's contribution to publicising and distributing your book? How much demand is there for premium editions? And what characteristics make these premium editions more valuable? This is the kind of thing I hope to explore in the With a Little Help project. I'll be reporting in on what I learn. I'm sure there'll be plenty of people who'll be ready to dismiss it by asserting that something that works for one writer doesn't automatically work for every other writer. This is true, obvious, and unimportant. The important thing is what writers might try based on the experiences of their peers.
1: Corey is such like an inspiration for the kind of you know the way his kind of philosophy works about ebooks and about everything like that. And you know, if you go over to Tor.com, there is getting serialized Corey's new book called Make As. And then this new experiment book's coming out as well. So I think it's a great time to be on the internet and th- this kind of, this way, this method of, of delivering media is evolving. You It's a fine time to, to appreciate science fiction. So today's podcast is brought to you by Audible.com, the leading provider in spoken word entertainment Audible has over 35,000 titles to choose from to be downloaded and played back anywhere, just like Starship Sofa. Log on to audiblepodcast.com slash sofa to get a free audiobook download of your choice when you sign up today. Again, go to audiblepodcast.com slash sofa to get your free audiobook. And I've been thinking about what I would like, like to recommend or what I can kind of recommend for this week's show. And... Came, it came straight away when I was watching the TV on the TV on British uk TV now we've Stephen Fry is in a program called "Last Chance to See." It's actually taken or the idea is taken from a Douglas Adams book. Douglas Adams and zoologist called Mark Cowardine, about 20 year ago, probably now, went you know in the last chance to see all endangered species. Well, now it's like a TV program over here in the north in England, I't say the northeast of England, but in England from the BBC. And that just kind of, like you say, Douglas Adams, you know, he's got a a spot in anybody's heart. You know, any kind of science fiction fan, anybody, you know, the kind of the humour that came out there. I remember I, I was looking for Last Chance to See, and that actually isn't in Audible's, but then I seen The Salmon of Doubt. Now, that came out just after, you know, Douglas Adams died. And I just remember that was a fine book. You know, it was very kind of personal book as well. It had a few chapters in from this novel that... Adams was writing on and it's, you know, Douglas Adams was like renowned for deadlines zooming past his head. You know what I mean? And whether he was ever going to get this thing finished or not, you know, you never can tell there now, you know, the salmon of doubt, the book though, it had just everything, you know, you could probably want and find out about Douglas Adams. You know, there was in there, there was like different snippets from, from all sorts of, you know, streams of his life. And I was also looking for other things on Audible, and there's this one called Douglas Adams at the BBC, a celebration of the author's life and work. And I just want to give you a little play of this one as well.
2: Rain in the rainforest. And um, Are you sure we that didn't you're not making all this up? No, it's absolutely yeah. true. We've got, we got a photograph. We got yeah. a photograph. Well, I hope you find them. The, the cacapole. The cacapole, which is a flightless parrot. Yes. Um, no, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> you don't convince me. But I wish you success in Finland, them, Douglas Adams.
1: Thank you very Thanks. much. <laughs> However, the adventure did not begin immediately. It took Douglas the next 18 months or so to fulfill his contract for the first Dirk Gently book. But eventually, Douglas and Mark were indeed to be discovered in a boat going up the Amazon in search of the extremely rare Amazonian manatee. And in case you're wondering what that is...
2: An Amazonian manatee could only be considered beautiful by a zoologist, or another manatee. It's a large black animal with skin like vinyl, and it looks a little bit like a large seal, but more like a large traveling case for keeping a seal in. In fact, it's not related to seals or whales at all, and its closest living relative, oddly enough, is the elephant. It's a very, very slow-moving animal, It spends any time it's not actually eating fast asleep. And it's easy to mistake one for a particularly listless mud bank. Its sleepiness makes it very easy prey for the only predator it has, men with harpoons.
1: There you go, and just so happens it was on about last chance to see. That's the Douglas Adams at the BBC, a celebration of the author's life. And they're on about these manatees. That's the one I watched last week, and... What a cute looking, you know what I mean? Just a big, big, like I say, like a big seal looking thing, but big docile eyes, and you know it was, it was an, that was an actually great program as well, you know. But like I say, everyone, I think everyone's, I've never heard a bad word about Douglas Adams, you know. What I mean? So there you go, my recommendation. Actually, anything by Douglas Adams. <laughs> So we come on to Main Fiction of the Night and it's by Lawrence Watt Evans. Lawrence Watt Evans is the author of more than 30 novels, over 100 short stories and over 150 published articles and a few comic books. He was an active member of the Science Fiction and Fantasy Writers of America from 82 to 2006. He was nominated for A Nebula in 1987. He won the Hugo for Best Short Story in 1988 for when I left Harry's All Night Hamburgers, he served as president for the Horror Writers Association from ninety four to ninety six. He is a part owner of Beyond Comics, Incorporated, a small chain of comic book shops in the Washington D.C. area. I just emailed Lawrence Watt Evans and, you know, asked him if anything's happening in his life. And he says he's got a new book from Tor coming out in November, A Young Man Without Magic. So I'll give a mention again that when that comes out again. So do look out for that. Do over do Lawrence Watt Evans' site. Say hello. I'm on my best behaviour with Lawrence. Trying to get some more stories. It is narrated by David Munga. David Munger has done, if you remember, Gold Sellers De Luma No More. He narrated that and he did Jack Skillingstead's story as well. Are you there? Fantastic narrator. So, the Starship Suva and her aural delight is very proud to present Spirit
4: Dump by Lawrence Watt Evans There's this place I know, he said, perching himself on the corner of the desk. Out past the Bannersburg landfill, near where the sheriff dumped all the confiscated booze from those moonshiners last year, that I visit when I need cheering up. She looked up at him, startled, and then grimaced. It's that obvious? Yep. He smiled. She sighed. His smile vanished. Or if you'd rather just talk about it. She shook her head. No, she said, I tried that with Angie. You know her, my apartment mate, don't you? Well, anyway, I talked to her, and it didn't do any good. So what is it that's bothering you, anyway, if you don't mind my asking? That's the thing. Maybe that's why talking didn't work. I don't know what it is. I just feel like my life... I don't know, like it's not going anywhere, or maybe it's... Ah, hell. He nodded. Well, this place I mentioned is a lot cheaper than a shrink, and it's safer than drugs. Care to give it a shot? Where did you say? Near Bannersburg. It's about a half a mile past the landfill. What, is it a great view or something? That's getting up in the hills, right? Kind of. The view, well, there's a view, but it's not just that. It's hard to explain. It just seems like a place where you can dump your problems and worries and forget about them. She eyed him suspiciously. "'And I suppose you were figuring you could drive me up there "'to this place in the middle of nowhere, "'just the two of us, for a look at this romantic scenery?' "'He put a hand on his chest, fingers spread. "'Me?' he said. "'Would I try something like that?' "'Yes,' she nodded emphatically. "'He laughed. "'True. "'And if that's what would cheer you up, Suze, "'I'd be glad to oblige, "'but honestly, it wasn't what I had in mind. "'Look, I can give you directions "'and you can drive up by yourself.' or we can bring along a chaperone, or make a party of it. Really? She studied his face, and saw nothing hidden there, no trace of sarcasm or spite or even lechery. Why are you telling me this, Paul? she asked. He shrugged, just trying to help out a fellow human being. That's it? He smiled crookedly. Well, maybe I do have an ulterior motive, but... I'm not going to tell you what it is until after you've seen the place. She stared up at him for a moment, then said, All right, you're on, but we'll bring Angie. Angie looked out the car window and pronounced yuck. Paul laughed. That's the landfill, he said. That's a dump, Angie said. I don't care what they call it, it's a dump. They were dumps when I was a kid, and changing the name doesn't change the fact that they're still dumps. They plough em under now, though, Paul pointed out. It's more sanitary. The stuff doesn't just sit there collecting vermin. Whatever, it's still a dump, and it's ugly. Never said it wasn't. He glanced at Sue's and his expression dimmed. She wasn't laughing. She was staring dully out the window on the other side, watching the passing trees. "'There's nothing wrong with dumps,' he said. "'Gotta put all the trash somewhere, don't you?' Angie snorted. "'Dumps make me sick,' she said. "'When I was a kid, my Uncle Bert used to hang around the town dump. "'He'd shoot rats there. "'They paid him a bounty, maybe a quarter each, "'which was hardly worth the bullet. "'He thought it was fun, though, and he'd pick through all the stuff, "'and sometimes he'd bring home some of it. "'Old magazines and sometimes books and machinery parts.' He used to fix my mother's washing machine, and I don't think he ever in his life paid for parts. People throw away the damnedest things. Doesn't sound so bad, Paul said. Yeah, it was. Everything he brought in stank. He stank. And he was filthy, always. I can still see him standing there, holding up a bunch of mangled rats by their tails. Well, there probably aren't any rats in the landfill back there, anyway, Paul said. That's why they bury it all now, so rats won't get in there. Of course, that means nobody can pick through it, either, Angie pointed out. Uncle Bert would lose out both ways, if he hadn't drunk himself to death ten years ago. Paul shrugged. I guess he would, he agreed. He shook his head. And people do throw away the damnedest things. A moment later, they turned off the main road, which wasn't exactly a highway to begin with, onto a narrow strip of dirt. Angie started away from the window as they passed within inches of the tree branches on either side. "'Shit,' she said. "'You sure you know where you're going?' "'I'm sure,' Paul told her. About a quarter of a mile from the road, the car suddenly emerged into sunlight. Paul brought it to a stop and killed the engine. "'Everybody out,' he announced. "'We're here.' Angie leaped out and looked around. Suze didn't move until Paul came around the car and opened her door. She looked up at him, then reluctantly climbed out. The three of them stood in a strip of grassy meadow atop a small ridge. Behind them were the woods, all secondary growth and brambly underbrush. Ahead of them the land dropped off abruptly, a steep slope of bare earth and tuffets, perhaps fifteen or twenty feet high. Grass and wildflowers filled the gap between trees and drop, which varied from about a dozen feet in width to as much as forty. At the foot of the slope the scrub forest gradually resumed, starting with grass and weeds, graduating through thorns and briars, to bushes, a few browning evergreens, and finally to crowded, unhealthy maple and ash. Sus looked around, appalled. This is your great scenic spot? she demanded. "'Angie said, "'Looks more like Uncle Bert's old hangout, only without the trash. "'They'd throw it all down the slope and let it pile up at the bottom. "'Hey, I said it wasn't the view that mattered, "'though I'd like to point out that you can see Sugarloaf if you look over that way.' "'He pointed to the distant mountain, a blue lump on the horizon. "'So what is it, then?' Suze asked. "'Come here, and I'll show you,' Paul told her, "'marching up to the very brink and beckoning her forward.' Slowly, reluctantly, she approached. "'Come on,' he said. "'I'm not going to push you over or anything.' Both women came up to stand beside him. "'Now,' he said, "'look down the slope and tell me what you see.' Obedient, the two peered over the edge. "'Nothing,' Angie told him. Suze blinked. "'Not even a beer can, right?' Paul asked. "'I don't know,' Sue said. its "'I don't see anything, but it feels like there's something down there.' Paul nodded. "'Okay, Sue," he said. "'I want you to take all that anger and depression "'and whatever it is that's got your spirit so weighed down lately, "'and I want you to gather it all up into a big lump and throw it down there.' She turned to stare at him. "'What?' Like a visualization exercise, he said. Like in meditation or biofeedback or something. Just concentrate on it. Think of it as if it were a real, tangible thing. And throw it down there. Suze hesitated. Oh, go ahead, Angie said. Can't hurt to try. All right. She concentrated She thought of the gloom as a big gray something that had hung down over her, and suddenly she could see it. She could see this dark, foul thing, half cloud, half slime, that was covering her. And she reached up with both hands and heaved it up, revolted by the feel of it, heaved it up and flung it out over the brink. It fell, streaming grayish gunk that settled after it in a noisome, clinging cloud." And suddenly she felt better than she had in weeks. She blinked and realized that the day was warm and sunny, that even though the trees down there were thin, their leaves were green and bright, the sunlight golden on the ground. The wildflowers on the ridgetop were cheerful, like a scattering of children's drawings. A monarch butterfly was vividly orange as it fluttered from one blossom to the next. "'Wow!' she said." Angie looked at her, startled. Paul grinned. "'Worked, huh?' "'How did you do that?' Suze demanded. But she wasn't angry. She felt too good to be angry. She was just curious. "'I didn't do anything,' Paul told her. "'You did.' "'Come on,' Suze insisted, grinning. "'No, really. or really, it's this place that did it. Take a look over the side there. Carefully.' A bit doubtful, Suze approached the edge as closely as she dared and looked down. What am I supposed to see, she asked. Angie beside her said, I don't see a damn thing but rocks and dirt. Suze, Paul said, try to see that bad mood you threw down there. I won't get it back, will I, she asked, with just the faintest trace of apprehension. No, no, of course not. She glanced at him, then stared back down the slope, trying to recall what that gray, squirming mess had looked like. And there it was. And there was a great deal more. She saw, faintly but definitely, gray and black and sick brown and bilious green and hot red and gray and more gray. The slope was covered with the stuff, with oozing blobs and barbed chunks and a hundred other hazy, intangible shapes. "'Oh, my God!' she breathed. "'People throw away the damnedest things, don't they?' Paul asked her, grinning. "'What?' Angie shouted. "'What is it? What's down there?' "'What is all that stuff, Paul?' Suze asked. "'Well,' he said, pointing— That spiky reddish thing is that bout of bad temper I had last summer and I just couldn't get rid of. The dark oily thing there is from when my mother was thinking about suicide. I brought her out here. But most of them, I don't know, they were here before I ever saw the place. Angie was staring at him, he realized. She probably thought it was a joke, he told himself. I learned about it from my grandfather, Paul explained and he claimed to have heard about it from an old Indian who said this was the place where men would come and leave whatever evil spirits were troubling them. Granddad called it the spirit dump. I never believed in any of that stuff, Sue said, still staring down the slope. Paul shrugged. I don't know if it's evil spirits, or if it's something in the air here, or magnetic field or maybe it's all hallucinations. I just knew that it worked for me and that it seemed to work for my mother, and Granddad said it worked for him. And I wanted to see if it would work for everybody, or if maybe it was just my family, or just my imagination. And when you'd been in a funk for the past week, I figured it was a chance to find out. What are you looking at, Suze? Angie demanded. Ain't nothing down there. Suze shuddered. All that stuff, she murmured. She stepped back from the edge. "'Let's get back in the car,' she said. "'I'll tell you about it later.'" Paul sat at his desk, tapping a pencil on the blotter as he watched Sue's talking brightly to Roger and Amy. He frowned. He hadn't told her to keep the spirit dump secret. He hadn't thought it was necessary. He didn't suppose it could really hurt if more people found out about it, after all— and the amount of stuff accumulated there already plenty of people had known about it over the years. Still, it bothered him. Suze was practically advertising the place like a missionary seeking converts. Roger and Amy were just the latest in a long series. But then, why shouldn't she proselytize? What could happen? Was he afraid that the magic would get used up somehow? Maybe that was it. Or maybe he was just being selfish. He had this wonderful cure-all, and he was being asked to share it, and he wanted it all for himself. Maybe that was it. He tapped harder. When the pencil broke, he went back to his paperwork. By the end of the second week, his agitation had reached such a level that it was interfering with his work, with his driving, with everything— Obviously, the thing to do was to drive out to the spirit dump and chuck his worry over the cliff. That would prove that the place still worked, for one thing. So, Saturday morning, he headed out past the Bannersburg landfill. There were fresh tire tracks at the turnoff, several of them. He realized he had a headache. Along the narrow access road, a tree branch snapped off against his window, the broken end dragging across the side of his car, and his head began pounding and when he reached the strip of Meadow and found a Chrysler minivan half-blocking his path so that he had to steer carefully between its rear bumper and the trees in order to get out into the clearing, the headache was unbearable. Enraged, he climbed out and shouted, "'Hey, Paul,' someone called. Paul followed the voice and spotted Roger. "'What are you doing here?' he demanded. Roger grinned at him and shrugged. "Sue's told us about this place,' he said. "'So we thought we'd check it out.' Paul stared at him for a moment, then stamped on up to the edge of the cliff and peered over, forcing himself to not just look, but to see. The mass of spiritual debris lay upon the barren slope, stretching a hundred yards in either direction, but with the largest concentration directly below him. And there were dozens of new additions since his last visit, most of them small, most of them thin and gray and relatively harmless-looking, but still— "'Dozens. More, he thought, than had been added in all the years he had been coming here. "'What have you been throwing down there?' he bellowed. "'Nothing much,' someone answered. "'A hangover,' someone else said, evoking laughter from two or three others. "'Paul saw that it was one of the strangers, a big overweight man with ragged black hair. "'He was holding an open can of beer. "'A hangover? For Christ's sake, a a hangover goes away by itself!' "'Yeah, well, I'd rather have it doing it down there than in me,' the fat man retorted. "'And how do you know it will? "'Maybe it'll just sit down there and fester,' Paul shouted. "'So what?' "'So you want this to fill up? "'What happens then?' "'The fat man shrugged. "Damn it! you get down there and get that hangover back,' Paul ordered. "'The fat man snorted. "'You're crazy,' he said. "'Get down there! "'Make me!' Paul charged. The fat man sidestepped and swung an arm to fend off his attacker. Paul, half blind with fury and the pain of his headache, stumbled directly into the blow. At first he didn't know what had happened. He knew he was falling, that the grass had gone out from underneath his feet. But he thought he would land on his back on the meadow. Then he realized it was taking too long, and an instant later he slammed backward into the bare dirt and rolled involuntarily. He tried to catch himself, but all he managed to do was to turn his roll into a slide. He still wound up at the bottom of the slope, at the bottom of the slope and underneath the contents of the dump. Despair washed over him, thick, gray, drowning despair, as he lay on his back, trying to gather his senses. He stared up at a sky gone the color of mud and a sun gone dim and brown, and the futility of it all filled him, pressed down on him. Simply to breathe took an effort, and it was horribly tempting to just stop, to let his breath out, and forget to take another. He reached up and pushed the thing off him, and the sun was bright again, the sky blue. His head still hurt, and one foot stung oddly, but the suffocating hopelessness was gone. Whoever had thrown that down here, he thought, had done the right thing. He looked around. He was sitting on the bare dirt near the bottom of the slope, and all around him were the vague, indistinct shapes and colors of the dump's contents. Above, at the top of the slope, Roger and half a dozen strangers were staring worriedly down at him. It didn't look like a particularly difficult climb, except that it went right through the center of the dump. Frowning, he looked around. Could he go down the slope the rest of the way and around? No. The dump extended well past him, down to the trees, almost as great a distance as that to the meadow atop the ridge, and the walk around either end would be a good long one from the look of it. So he would just have to climb straight up the slope. "'Are you all right?' Roger called. "'I'm okay,' Paul called back. "'Can you get back up?' "'Sure,' he said.' He got to his feet, or tried to. There was something clinging to one leg, something sharp and rusty brown, something that stung, something that seemed to twang every nerve and tendon in his ankle. He winced, reached down, and plucked it off. It burned his hand, and he flung it quickly aside. Then he started climbing. He knew, from his very first step, that he was going to be wading through decades, maybe centuries of accumulated psychic detritus. He tried to brace himself for it, but he really didn't know how. Nothing he had ever done had prepared him for something like this. A green-like rotting cheese roiled up his leg, and a rush of envy swept over him. Roger was safe up there, the smug bastard." He tore the envy away and took another step, and a rush of guilt flooded him. How could he think ill of Roger, who hadn't meant any harm? He hesitated with that one, and tried an experiment. He reached down and tore off a few fragments, just little ones, like sickly gray-black cotton balls. He hadn't been sure it was possible, but in fact it was easy, easier, he thought, than it should have been. He was sure he was doing something wrong here, that this was immoral somehow, but he forced himself. He collected about a dozen pieces, then wadded them up and stuffed them in his pocket. He knew he shouldn't be doing it. It was a really terrible idea. Then his hand came out of his pocket, and he smiled. The idea no longer troubled him at all. "'What are you doing down there, Paul?' Roger called. Paul had just tried to squeeze between two very large, nasty-looking things, and in doing so had run his leg right onto a hot red spike of anger. He snapped his head up and glared at Roger. "'What the hell does it look like I'm doing?' he bellowed. "'Fat lot of help you are!' He shook his leg free of the bad temper and took another step. This was really very boring. Tiresome. Maybe he should just settle down somewhere and rest until it got more interesting.' climbing up the slope wasn't any fun he waded on through depression ennui anger envy guilt shame greed and some surprises lust for one that he thought was probably a relic of a more straight laced era it was all he could do to keep his hands out of his pants until he had scrambled up past it and pride sinful pride a huge seething mass of it he wondered if whoever dumped it had kept any. The sheer quantity was amazing. Maybe it had grown since being dumped. Could it do that? Any number of questions piled into his mind, and he realized he'd stepped on a lump of curiosity. He kicked it aside and lost his balance. He put out an arm to catch himself, and mindless panic swept over him. Abject terror. He froze. HE WAS NEAR THE TOP, BUT SUDDENLY HE WAS SCARED TO GO ANY FARTHER. PAUL? HE LOOKED UP, AND ROGER'S FACE WAS THERE, HANGING ABOVE HIM LIKE SOME LOOMING HORROR ABOUT TO POUNCE. THE DIRT WAS SOFT AND CRUMBLING BENEATH HIM. AT ANY MOMENT HE KNEW HE WOULD PLUMMET BACK DOWN THE slope. HE WOULD BREAK HIS NECK AGAINST ONE OF THE TREES AT THE BOTTOM. HE'D SLASH HIMSELF ON THE THORNS AND LIE THERE BLEEDING AND CRIPPLED. AND ROGER WOULD JUST LAUGH. "'Roger had planned it all, the whole thing. "'He'd put Suze up to it. "'Her depression wasn't real at all. "'They were all in it. "'He started to take a step back down the slope, "'away from his enemy up there, "'that monster that had pretended to be a friend, "'that had lured him into this trap. "'Monster. "'That was it. "'Roger wasn't human at all. "'He was some kind of demon.' "'He'd planned it all. "'He'd probably created the spirit dump in the first place "'just to trap people. "'He lured his prey out here with his phony cures "'and then trapped them in the dump "'where he could torture them, "'where he could suck out their souls, "'where he could blind them with thorns "'and let flies drink the blood, and... "'If he stepped back, "'that might be what the fiend wanted. "'There could be barbed metal spikes there, "'spring-loaded spears that would thrust up "'into his belly, his groin.' They'd missed him the first time, but now the Roger thing was trying to drive him back to where the traps, the other monsters, were waiting. Little things with teeth and claws and shining bright eyes. He could almost see them, behind him, on either side, everywhere. He didn't dare move, but he didn't dare stay where he was, either. He began trembling, not merely with fear, but as he struggled with himself over what to do. He knew he could never defeat the monsters, not just the Roger thing, but all the others that must be lurking up there out of sight, that had been hiding in among the trees. But maybe he could at least try. Maybe somebody would hear his screams as he tried to escape. And they brought him down, fangs and claws and sharp steel blades gleaming. He lunged forward, and the fear lost its grip. He sprawled on the slope, his hand reaching the grass at the top of the cliff, his face falling smack into the hangover that someone had thrown down just moments earlier. The world spun, his head throbbed, Roger's shuffling footsteps were like huge grating sandpaper sounds, like fingernails on a blackboard. But at least he wasn't terrified anymore, just nauseated. Then someone had hold of his arm, and he was being pulled up, and he reluctantly managed to get his feet under him and clamber up the last few feet onto the meadow. The hangover came with him, and he blinked owlishly at his rescuers. The light hurt his eyes. Are you all right? Someone asked. He winced. Don't shout, he whispered. Someone giggled. I think you got my hangover, he said. Paul nodded, then winced again as the movement made his headache worse. When the others released his arms, he sank down to sit cross-legged on the grass, where he gradually managed to pry the hangover bit by bit, out of his head and gut. When he finally flung it back over the side, it was as if the sun had burst through storm clouds, and he took a deep, gasping breath in relief. Then he sat for a moment, gathering his thoughts as the others all huddled about him, He stuck a hand in his pocket and pulled out a little wad of guilt. He felt bad about what he was about to do, but he told himself that was just the guilt. He didn't let it stop him. "'Give me a hand,' he said, reaching out. Two people took his hands, one on each side, to help him up. When he was upright, he made sure to leave a little bit of guilt with each of them. A little guilt never hurt anybody. "'Roger,' he said, after quickly dipping his hand back in his pocket, Thanks for pulling me up. He reached out to shake hands. Roger, a bit reluctantly, shook and took a little guilt away with him. Two others were clapped on the back. The last of the group he didn't bother with. The poor woman looked guilty enough already. And he still had a fair-sized lump in his pocket that would come in handy when he talked to Sue's on Monday and asked her to stop broadcasting about the place. He wasn't sure how we would store it that long, but he was sure he could manage it. "'Bet you're glad to be out of there,' someone said. "'I'm really sorry if we caused you trouble.' "'It's nothing,' Paul said. "'Really.' "'Yeah, well,' Roger said. "'I wouldn't want to go down there. "'We could see your face. "'It looked awful.' "'It wasn't so bad,' Paul insisted. "'I bet you wouldn't want to do it again.' "'Oh, I don't know,' Paul said, "'looking back, remembering lust and pride "'and the wad of guilt.' i thinking of Angie's good old Uncle Bert. People throw away the damnedest things.
1: And there you go. Don't forget, copyright is Mr. Lawrence Watt Evans. Do pop over to his site, like I say, and say hello. David, thank you for a fine narration next up is a little fact article by simon hildebrand now this is simon's just going to give you an update on the google android app you know the starship Sofa,
0: the sofa stream one it is complete simon hello sofa fans simon hildebrand here with a sofa stream update first up the android developer challenge Well, despite a few last-minute technical challenges, SofaStream is officially registered as a competitor in the second ADC. Android users will be able to download the special judging app around mid-September, so don't forget to get involved and show SofaStream some voting love. And if you're a new listener trying out Starship Sofa via SofaStream, don't forget to come over to the forums at starshipsofa.com and let us know what you think. Coinciding with the ADC2, Was a new SofaStream release, version 1.1. This release incorporates a few small bug fixes based on some excellent feedback in the forums, plus some internationalization cleanup in preparation for some translation work. Ever wonder what SofaStream might look like in a Chinese language? You might see it soon. And also in version 1.1 is our new icon, contributed by competition winner Josh Leitzer. We had some terrific submissions, and choosing was difficult but Josh's nifty little sofa hit the spot perfectly. Josh's prize will be a copy of the new Starship Sofa Compilation, Starship Sofa Stories Volume 1. Don't forget to take a look at the show notes to see Josh's winning artwork, or check his site at jleutze, that's e.com So thanks to Josh and everyone who submitted icons, and thanks to everyone in the forums discussing Sofa Stream. Back to you, Tony.
1: There you go. If you've got a G1 phone, or you've got a a Google Android phone, please go out and check it. Dedicated, dedicated science fiction into your phone via the Starship server. How good are we to use? So we'll get on to new titles, and the first new title we have today is Mike Carey, The Naming of the Beasts. This one's paperback by Orbit, priced at $7.99. Mike Carey in this series has got the devil you know and dead man's boots. They say the road to hell is paved with good intentions, but if you ask Felix Casta, he'll tell you there's quite a lot of arrogance and reckless stupidity lining the streets as well. And he should know there's only so many times you can play both sides against the middle and get away with it. Now the inevitable moment of crisis has arrived and it's left Castor with blood on his hands. Well, not his hands, you understand. It's always someone else's who pays the bill. Friends, acquaintances, bystanders. So Castor drowns his guilt in cheap whiskey while an innocent woman lies dead and her daughter comatosed his few remaining friends fear for their lives and there's a demon loose on the streets but not just any demon this one rides shotgun on his best friend's soul and it can't be expelled without killing him. sfx is extremely impressive entertaining and assured i'll give you a little heads up for mike carey he is the acclaimed rider of lucifer and hellblazer now filmed as constantine He has also written extended runs for Marvel's fan-favourite titles, X-Men, Ultimate Fantastic Four, the comic book adaptation of Neil Gaiman's Neverwhere. He lives in London with his wife and three children and a cat named Tasha. Next one up is a hardback, and it comes from Tor. This one is God of Clocks by Alan Campbell. This is the third one in the Deep Gate Codex. I think I mentioned on new titles once before, Iron Angel by Alan Campbell. The gates to hell have been opened, releasing unnatural creatures threatening to turn the world into a killing field. In the middle, caught between warring gods and fallen angels, humanity finds itself pushed to the brink of extinction. Its only hope is the most unlikely of heroes. Former assassin Rachel Hale has rejoined the blood magician Mina Green and her devious little dog Basil on one last desperate mission to save the world from the grip of hell. Carried in the jaw of a debased angel, they rushed to the final defensive stronghold, pursued all the while by twelve Arcanites, the great iron and bone automatons controlled by King Minor, the Lord of the Maze. But the strange fortress of the God of Clocks, unlike anything they could ever have expected, and now old enemies and new allies join in a battle whose outcome could end them all. As Rachel travels to the final confrontation, has both sought and feared she begins to realize that time itself is unraveling and so she must prepare herself for a sacrifice that may claim her heart her life and her soul and even they may not be enough praise for alan campbell neil asher says i haven't read a fantasy this good in years it is utterly marvelous publishers weekly says campbell has neil gaiman's gift for lusciously dark stories and compelling anti heroes, and effortlessly channels the Victorian atmospherics of writer and illustrator Mervyn Peake. Price starts hardback, seven seventeen ninety nine. that's from Tor, the God of Clocks, Alan Campbell. Next one up is Nova War by Gary Gibson. Found adrift near a banditai Connolly world far away from consortium space dakota and corso find themselves prisoners of the banditai an alien race from whom dakota stole the film suit technology and for which now they want payment dakota has discovered that humanity's limited knowledge of the rest of the galaxy filtered through the shoal is direly inaccurate the shoal have been fighting a frontier war with the rival species the emissaries with their own fast-than-light technology for over 15,000 years, and, as yet, their enemies are unaware of the drive's destructive capabilities. But the Banditai have also uncovered this valuable information, and have resolved to use it for their own profit. Forced into and Dakota soon realises that for all their faults, the Shoal may be the galaxy's one chance of sustained peace. Forge an alliance with the Shoal member, Trader, He's determined to prevent the spread of the deadly knowledge carried on board the Margai ships. But it appears that the Nova War will destroy millions of inhabited worlds is inevitable. Nova War is the second book in the Shoal sequence. The first one was Stealing Light. Prior to becoming a professional writer, Gary Gibson worked for an environmental agency, but left shortly after members of the staff attempted to alleviate a local bridge as a protest against road traffic. Following this, he worked for a graphic designer for a printing firm that turned out to be run by a gang of convicted forgers, <laughs> hastening his departure, and then a small publishing company otherwise notable for only producing a Freddie Mercury impersonator, well known on the Scottish cabaret circuit. He hasn't had much luck, Gary Gibson. He currently resides in Taiwan with his wife, where the only lunatic he has to answer to is now himself. Go on there. This, like, this is the second one, stealing out the first one, Nova War, Gary Gibson. Last up is a fantasy novel by Orbit, nice trade paperback, Kate Elliott, Traitor's Gate. Reavy Josh is struggling to defend a country ravaged by the onslaught of the Twin Armies. His men now patrol a land of burned villages and homeless refugees as Josh tries to separate Traitor from Friend. Rivi's thoughts are also plagued by the intruding Zubat, pleasure-giver, spy and temporal-trained assassin. But Zubat is focused on a dangerous mission, her target being warped Guardian Lord Radas. His death would leave the invading militia in chaos. But the old tales tell truly of Guardian's immortality and of the powers they now wield to twist the hearts of men. Joss's knights are also troubled, disturbed by dreams of Marit. His lost love has returned from death to become a feared guardian herself, but Morrit rejected the corrupt temptations they offered. She now seeks others of a kind, praying some of them are yet uncontaminated by the blight on the land and have the will to fight it. Praise for Kate Elliott. Beautifully descriptive passages oozing with texture, taste, and even aroma. SFX. Sci-fi weekly says a treasure for readers who enjoy the journey as much as or more than the destination. The Times a gripping and enthralling fantasy epic. So priced at twelve ninety nine, trade payback, trade as gate, the final one in the four today. I think I will pick, I'll go for because it's basically pure science fiction there. Nova War, Gary Gibson. Tour priced hardback seventeen ninety nine. That is new titles that is oral Delights show number 99 one more week to the big big deal <laughs> I'm driving the wife mad I'm driving the kids mad I'm so excited you know what's the funny thing is I get like high as kites honestly and I'm like getting the kids and I'm squeezing them you know that kind of bear huggy kind of <gasps> and it's like dad dad and i trying to watch the telly it's like oh
2: God, look at what dad's got.
1: So, yeah. Flitty <laughs> voice is going. So, yeah, I am a happy bunny. Look out for next week's show. Don't forget Damien G. Walter's Zine Day. I think it is. I'm having signs zines. Helping Starship over so do everything like this, you know, and contribute to the you know, the field of science fiction. is just an amazing thing. And I really appreciate if you come over and, you know, do the monthly donation. That's just like I've keep on harping on about this, but it's 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 true. Do you know what I mean? It just keeps her behind the sofas, behinds up in the in space. Do you know? So please, you know, would um again blow me trumpet. We do a lot of good work over here, all the way. Do you know what I mean? If you want to see it, you know, want to help out, please think about donating or joining up the the actual sanatorium shows. I'm normally trying to announce little things there. You know, about what's happening first. So, if you wanted to get the kind of first snippet on it, come over, please. There you go. Next week, show 100. I hope you enjoyed everything today. I hope you enjoyed the main fiction. That story was, I read that years ago and meant a lot of us to get it up on, on air there today. So, there you go. Until next week, I would just like to say good night from me. Ooh. survive this
2: terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Solution Sofa. A valuation procedure initiated. Shovel set for us. Here are your opened in 3, two, one.